Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Changes with me, Annie McManus. This is a place where we discuss all things change and how it affects us. Today, my guest is Ramesh Ranganathan. Ramesh is one of the UK's most successful comedians. He's won a BAFTA for his travel series, The Misadventures of Ramesh Ranganathan. He's known for Asian Provocateur, his sitcom, The Reluctant Landlord on Sky. He's released a docuseries in the US. He starred alongside fellow comedian Rob Beckett in Rob and Ramesh Versus. Most recently, he's been entertaining the nation from his garage during lockdown with his new show, Ranganathan. On top of that, he has found time to present his own brilliant podcast, Hip Hop Saved My Life. His autobiography, Straight Out of Crawley, The Memoirs of a Distinctly Average Human Being, became a Sunday Times bestseller. And he has embarked on his biggest tour to date with The Cynics Mixtape. His new book, As Good As It Gets, Life Lessons from a Reluctant Adult, is out in October. We didn't really need an excuse to speak to him. There's so many things going on. If he was a woman, we'd be asking him how he found time to look after his kids as well as all of this. But he's not. He has a wonderful wife with three children at home, all boys, young. And he will talk about that as well as many other things. The main thing we wanted to speak to him about is, of course, change. And Ramesh Ranganathan has been dealt a huge amount of change quite early on in life. His whole world was turned upside down as a child. His home, his school, his family. And later in life, he changed careers in a really extreme way. So Ramesh is very qualified to talk all about change and the different types of change we move through in our lives. He was, as you would predict, extremely hilarious, but also really, really open about this stuff that is very personal to him. So I am delighted to welcome him to the podcast. Please enter the podcast, Ramesh Ranganathan. Hello, Annie. Thank you very much for having me. I'm, I'm, it's an honour, genuine honour. I say that, I'll be honest, I say that on, on most of the podcasts <laughs> I go on, but this time I mean it. Well, I appreciate. I appreciate the sincerity. Yeah. Where are you? Are you in your house right now? I'm in my garage. Oh, nice. You've got a little garage spot. I sort of turned it into an office. I didn't sort of turn it into an office. I turned it into an office. But as I'm talking to you now, my wife has gradually been, just over the last few weeks, been moving more and more stuff in here. So I, I, I do think I might live here now. Listen, I am in the shed at the end of my garden. And the biggest regret of my life in making this shed is that I didn't put a toilet in. <laughs> if I did, I would never have to leave. It's I know. I know. There's something great about having a little hideaway, isn't there? Oh, it's amazing. I love it. It's soundproofed. I just lock the door and and I'm away. Anyway, so look, this podcast is all about change. You have been dealt so many change cards in your life, big, like quite extreme changes in your life. And we'll start with the biggest change that you went through in your childhood. So talk me through that. So when when I was very young um sort of growing up we, we were at a, I was at a private school and you know my mum and dad when they came over they were very uh keen to get, you know one of the reasons they came over from Sri Lanka was to give us the best possible start so they're obsessed with us going to private school you know they wanted to give us the best chances and all that stuff yeah. and so my mum and dad came over sort of late 70s sort of mid mid to late 70s and then what happened was we, we were completely unaware of this but my dad was going through some issues at work ended up uh, basically, in a short course of time, 
I reckon maybe over a six-month period, three big things happened. Uh, one was that our house got repossessed because my my mum and dad couldn't keep up the payments anymore. My mum also found out that my dad uh, had been seeing another woman for quite a while, so their relationship was thrown into turmoil. And then, just sort of as that was all caught playing out, my dad got arrested and uh, sent to prison. Those three things happened like very, very quickly. It was it, it went from like being properly, I guess, idyllic, you know, proper textbook, yeah. comfortable childhood, and then everything just went you know, very, very quickly kind of got turned upside down. How old were you? This happened when I was about 12, 12, 13, something like that. Right, right. And so what did that mean for your life? And obviously your house got repossessed, so you had to move somewhere. Mm. Where did you go? Initially, we moved into a house that my dad was renting from a friend and then couldn't afford to do that anymore. So we ended up... Um, Actually, what happened is we ended up living in a, a bed and breakfast because the council, we, we had to go to the council for, to, to rehouse us. Right. Um, and they didn't, they had a waiting list or whatever. So they put us into a, a, a bed and breakfast just outside of Crawley, where I'm from. That was just my mum, my brother and I, because my dad at that point, I think, wanted to live with this other woman I think that that, that was the, that was the the situation at that time and so he wasn't with us so it was my mum and my brother and myself in that place and then while my dad was was at this other woman's place he got he got picked up by the police so we were kind of we were on a, we, we, we were son's dad for that period. Did you get to speak to your dad before he went to prison? No, not really. I mean, the the truth is, is that I I I really hero worship my dad, and so mm. it sounds mad now, but I just refused to believe that my dad was seeing this other woman, even though my mum had caught them. And I remember thinking that my mum was delusional, or I think that was wishful thinking. I just I just really wanted my mum to be wrong, and so I I didn't say to my mum, "I think you've got it wrong," but in my head. I was thinking, oh, there's no way my dad would do this. There's no way that dad would do this to us. I obviously loved my dad, but properly put him on a pedestal. So I just didn't accept it. And, um, and so I didn't talk to him at all. And, and so I, I, for a long time, I operated under the illusion that this was all some kind of misunderstanding. Mm. And, and so I was going to see my dad again. And he was going to tell me that, God, Romesh, I don't know where all of this is coming from. You know, but then I remember being out with my mum and dad and they were having a big argument. This is just as this whole thing had been uncovered, this relationship with this other woman. And I was still in denial about it. And I remember my dad saying, you know, I haven't seen her for ages or I haven't seen her for a while now. I don't know where you're going on. And that, and although my dad saw that as a defence, Actually, what he'd done was confirm to me that this thing had been going on. Right. And I remember, I didn't say anything at the time, but the, it, I, I remember having like a visceral reaction. I was like, oh, shit, like this is real. Like my dad was seeing this woman, you know. And, and then, of course, once that happens, 
then everything my mum had said in the run-up to that, I suddenly realised is true. So when my so my mum had been saying, he wants to leave us in this house and go off with this other woman, all of that I thought was bullshit because I didn't, you know, I thought, I didn't think she was lying. I thought she was misguided. I thought she, you know, she, she'd got it wrong. Yeah. And so, and suddenly I'm like, oh shit, so that does mean that that was right. My dad did want to leave. You know, my dad did want to go off and start a new, well, not start a new family. My dad did want to go and set up a new life with this woman. Yeah. My dad did want to leave us w- with mum. All of those things suddenly become true. So then you're processing all of those things in one go, you know. So I remember it was a proper, like, uh, head fuck. <laughs> and also the age that you were, so 13, just when you're coming into teenage, just when you're getting really self-aware and self-conscious and awkward. Yeah. Just all of that happening in six months in that time must have just fucked with your head. Yeah, it was crazy. My brother, my I remember my brother reacting. In, it, we reacted in very, very different ways. My brother started throwing like massive tantrums and he'd like walk out and... How younger is he? He's How two many- years younger than me. He's two years oh, younger than me. So okay. he would like flip out and lose his shit and, 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 and uh, go off. And I internalised it a lot. So much so that I, I overheard one of my mum's friends saying to my mum, it doesn't feel like Romish is properly processing this. Like I overheard this conversation. You need to have a chat with him to see how he's dealing with this. Because I just, it's one of those things where I think if you start reacting to it, it makes it more real. So I was just kind of being totally a, bit, get it. a bit kind of, this is all going to go away at some point. Or, you know, it's going to be like, it's going to be one of the, it's a dream sequences. Yeah. And, I, and I'm going to wake up and it's like, it's going to be all right. So, yeah. um so yeah, it was it was a it was a weird one to to process, and I, I think the truth of it is, is I kind of let it define me for a few years afterwards. I don't think I fully processed it at the time, and it took a few years for it to fully unwind. You know, the impact of that in terms of how I felt about my dad and how I'd been to my mum, and 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 the the social implications of that in terms of the fact that. You know, we were in a comfortable situation and then all of a sudden that got taken away and a lot of my mum and dad's friends disappeared. Right. And then I was I was going from a private school to a comprehensive um, and settling into all of that and then trying to figure out how much of that I was going to divulge to people. You know, all of those kind of things you kind of you're dealing with. There's loads of different things that you're, you're trying to figure out how to play, if you like, you know. And then also just moving from your childhood home into a bed and breakfast I mean that is that must have been so unsettling and strange for you yeah the the transition thing was crazy right because because we were in this bed and breakfast and I was still I think my mum and dad were still trying to figure out a way because they were worried about unsettling us by moving schools so they were still trying to figure out desperately a way to keep us at the schools we were at but you know, it was it was too late by then. But because I, I was getting things like you know, accountants were turning up to my lessons at school and giving me like last demands and stuff like that because my parents had fallen so far into arrears at this school. But I remember being in a, a production, like I was in a play or something at the at the school, and this is like so it was weird. I was in this two world thing where I was still at that school but living in a bed and breakfast, and already being at that school and and coming from Crawley there's a bit of a stigma attached to coming from Crawley that you know everybody at the school th- thought Crawley people were like co- common and so this is this thing that I was trying to deal with right. 
you know, going to that school. And then all of a sudden I was living in this bed and breakfast. I absolutely did not want anyone at the school to find out this has happened because they already think that I'm, yeah. you know, working class kind of like, don't shouldn't be at the school kind of thing. Yeah. So I was worried about that. And my mum obviously couldn't pick me up from this play. It was like an evening performance. And so this other this other kid's mum said, I'll drop you off. At, I'll drop you off at your house. So I was like, okay, but at the same time, I don't want them. There's a massive sign outside the bed and breakfast. Right? So I don't want them to know that I live in a bed and breakfast. Yeah. So I'm thinking on the way, and, and weirdly, I guess, because he had so much, I, I, it only occurred to me that this was a problem as I got into the car at the school for them to give me a lift back. So yeah. I thought, I, I was thinking, what the hell am I going to do? So it was like that scene, you know, where Rodney in Only Fools and Horses gets dropped off at a different house right? <laughs> because he's too ashamed to show Cassandra where he really lives. That's what I basically did. I, I, I asked them to drop me off at this house down the road from the bed and breakfast and then kind of waited on the driveway for them to go. But she yeah. wouldn't because obviously she's like... She, she wanted to want see to... you in the door. <laughs> oh, no. What did you do? You have to go up to the I front door. Of, I sort of snuck... I sort of said, well... I said, well, my, 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 they're not going to... They're not going to want to come to the front. I, I normally go around the back. And I just sort oh, of walked... No. I went to walk down this side alley, kind of disappeared into the darkness of this <laughs> house. That I've got no idea who this house belonged to. Oh, my God. And then just waited for her to go. Oh my god! How long were you in the B and B for? How long did that period last? Uh, like maybe uh, it must have been about a year, and then maybe just under, and then they put yeah. us into into uh, a flat, and then eventually yeah. a house. And then, at what point did your dad get out of prison, and did he kind of enter your life again, your family unit? So when when he was in prison, um, he ended up getting moved to. Uh, a low security like an open prison he was at ford open prison and and so he had cut things off with this uh this other woman and actually what had happened was is i think he'd had you know I, i'm trying to think of a word that is less eggy than epiphany but i i, I think he'd had this realization that he'd been he'd been a bit out of order i guess and and he he realized that he didn't want to leave the family or i don't know you know i don't know the ins and outs of how my mum mum and him reconciled but he he'd made the decision he was going to come back to us after after coming out of prison and so he started to get these home visits where you're allowed to while you're still in prison you're allowed to go and visit your family you're allowed out for the day and so while he was inside he'd come and spend the day with us right and Obviously, for me, that was amazing it, because it's it's a uh, it's a normality. You sort of think, well, this is great. I'm seeing my dad, mm -hmm. and so I started to see. We started to see him while he was in prison, and then as soon as his prison yeah. sentence finished, I think it was only in for about a year. He was sentenced to two years, but he'd he'd spent some time in custody while the court case was going on. So there's time served, etc. And so we went from visiting him in prison to him visiting us, and then when he when he finished uh, his sentence, he came and lived with us again. And yeah. and so he was back with us, but it wasn't, you know, my my mum has never really healed from all of that, you know, because my dad was, my dad didn't just see that woman. My dad was quite promiscuous in in the early in the in the early years of my of his marriage with my mum, and my mum had him back and they made up but they were still arguing all the time you know my mum it was it was still my mum would still come back to 
that what he'd done to her and she, he'd, she'd still throw that up in discussions. And I remember talking to my mum about it and saying to her, you need to make a decision about whether you forgive him or not. You know, if you don't, if you don't forgive dad because you can't get over this, then you need to split up with him. And this is much later I came up, you know, I had this conversation. You need to split up with him because, because this, isn't, this isn't good. But if you are going to stay with him, then you can't keep bringing the... Not that you can't mention it ever, but you can't keep having a fresh argument about these things over and over again, you know? Yeah, yeah. So anyway, my dad, my dad moved back in with us and I had a, a difficult relationship with him uh, when he first moved back with us because I, uh, I uh, had a dad back who I knew that wanted to leave us. And so that was a difficult thing to, to, to reconcile with as a kid. And I remember when I was about 17 or 18, because I'll be honest with you, I turned into a bit of an arsehole after all that happened. You know, I became, you imagine rebellious teenager, but turned up because I really stopped giving a shit about things because of the way that everything had been turned upside down. I really did think, I don't give a fuck anymore. You know, I don't give a shit about my exams. I don't give a shit about attending school. I don't, you know, I don't, I really was sort of, I did go off the rails a little bit. And so when I went to uni, I was, I was pretty inconsiderate. I, I, I'd go out and I'd come back whenever I felt like. And, and I remember one night, I came back from a night out and I hadn't told them when I was coming back. And, and obviously they'd, they'd obviously been a bit worried. I probably said I was going to be back at early evening and came back really late. And my dad had a go at me about it. He said, you can't keep, you know, you, we're worried about you. You keep going out. You don't tell us when you're going back. It's inconsiderate. You're treating this place like a hotel. And I just absolutely unloaded on him like I just went like how can you even begin to tell me what I should do as a son the way that you've treated this family blah 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 just went into this monologue everything I'd wanted to say to him just came out in this one thing and Mm. I've got to be honest with you you know I've told this story to friends and stuff before my dad did not defend himself at all he just sat there and kind of took this rant from me and you know as I'm telling you it now the look on his face was just absolutely heartbreaking man like 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 it was like he was hearing everything that he Mm. thought as well you know like I I was saying to him everything I was saying to him the worst things that you'd want a son to say to you you know and and he wasn't even defending himself he just sat there and oh god it's horrible he just sat there and kind of took it and then I stormed out of the house and we never spoke about it again and um i mean it's just it's just you know it, it was a horrible thing i mean my mum says to i've talked to my mum about it since then and she said i'm actually glad you said it in a way because he needed to hear it because he he had been you know the way he had treated us had been horrible right. and actually that's a form of accountability of hearing how your your kids felt about it but at the same time I'd much rather that had happened in a reasoned series of, you know, discussions sure. where we're getting it out and you made me feel like this and separating the man from his actions and, and dealing with it in a, in, in a, in a more measured way. Yeah. The truth is I just went into this horrible rant and, uh, and I, I think about the look on his face now. It's just, it's horrible even, you know, I'm sort of getting upset about it now as I'm telling it to you now. It, it was a horrible thing. It was a horrible thing. Did did your relationship change with him after that? Like once you got it out of your system, was, did you feel lighter? Did your attitude change to him? Yeah, I mean, it was it was like magic, you know. Yeah. Uh, it, it's like when my my dad passed away a few years ago, and 
we were we were closer than we'd ever been. You know, my, my dad was close to my mum. We, you know, we ha- I had kids. My dad was amazing with my with my kids and um, really loving with them. And uh, and and as soon as all of that, as soon as that kind of got cleared out the way. And I started to see my, my dad, the rest of my dad's life was spent trying to make amends for what he'd done. So, right. you, you know, he was he was trying to make enough money to put my mum in a nice house to make up for the fact that he lost the house in the first instance. Mm. You know, he ended up buying a house beyond his means, really, because he was so desperate to, to make it right. Um, he was, in a, you know, he, he was he was so lovely to my mum Um and they got really, really close. But my mum still would throw up things from his past and stuff mm. like that. But my dad would just take it because I think he kind of saw it as I really, I really did mess you about. The least I can do is take is, yeah. is take my medicine. Do you yeah. know what I mean? For, for yeah. what I did. So, so I think that he never really reacted. You know, in the past, I'd seen him have arguments and, and, and fire back because I think he wanted out of that relationship mm. or he felt like he did. But when in the later part of his life, you know, after all of that happened, I think he kind of saw it as, I've just got to take this because I, I, I mistreated this woman. worshipped him as his eldest son yeah and then you kind of had this traumatic discovery that he was totally flawed how has that affected you the way that you had to learn as everyone does have to learn about humanity being people being fallible you had to learn in a fucking brutal way right when you were young how has it affected you like for the rest of your life and has that do you think fed into the way that you approach comedy like having this kind of early kind of trauma I guess you know of, of learning the reality of people yeah I mean the, tr- the, the honest truth is because you're a I catastrophist be... aren't you like you, you, that, that, I have yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that, there's got to be a link there right <laughs> yeah I'm 100% a catast- catastrophist yeah 100% like I, I constantly you know people like people often say to me that I, I don't ever stop working or I've got my work ethic is is ridiculous right. and I think that comes from a combination of things. But, you know, one of those things definitely is the fact that I saw my family go from what looked like a comfortable situation to just horror. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And so so there, I, don't, I can't imagine there will ever be a point at which I think I can relax. I kind of think that I'm always going to be worried that all of this, whatever this is, is going to go away. Do you know what I mean? And so that is something that kind of that has kind of stayed with me, definitely. I, I do also think that it's kind of made me less worried about the traditional signifiers of what a successful life is, you know, in, in terms of my dad was so after the nice house, nice car, because that is what that is what the external signs of of of, of having made it are. And and I'm less bothered by that than than I think I otherwise might have been because I just think the chase for that in itself isn't doesn't lead to kind of being happy and I don't I don't know if I would have fully grasped that had we not gone through what we'd gone through my dad's desperation for money is what led him to prison and then and then my dad passed away still trying to chase this you know when when after he died 
we realised that his finances were a complete house of cards and he'd been doing all this thing to try and get this nice house. And you think to yourself, well, this isn't the be-all. Getting a nice house or whatever and getting this shit is not the be-all and end-all. Happiness comes from different things, you know? And so I think that's given me that's given me that, that that I wouldn't have otherwise had. And the other thing is I just wouldn't have been a comedian had I not gone through that, you know, because being a comedian is an, is an unorthodox thing to do. And I, and I think I was on the path for getting a decent job and, you know, getting a comfortable salary and, and doing all of those things that my dad was trying to do. I think I definitely would have carried on down that path. But once everything kind of gets thrown upside down like that, you just think, oh, fuck it. I might as well like, you, you know, you, you, you kind of, you, you, I think you feel more inclined to think I don't, there is no path. I don't need to follow a path because if you are following a path, you can get thrown off it so easily. So you might as well do what you really want to do and let's just see what happens, you know. So I think that that was instilled in me in in a way that otherwise might not have been. So your second change, your adulthood change is to do with that, is to do with your kind of start into comedy and your father's passing, right? Yeah, so so basically what happened was is I was teaching and uh, I really was enjoying teaching and it, it was really, I, I was really having a great time. And then I started doing stand-up as a hobby, really. And that was always my intention was that I was going to do stand-up uh, as a side thing. You know, like how all teachers, you know, all teachers have got a band or whatever. That's what I thought I was going to, you know, I thought I was going to be this teacher that just did stand-up. And, and you I, taught I, maths, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What yeah. must you have been like as a maths teacher? Imagine <laughs> having Mr. Ranganathan as your maths teacher. Uh, it was a... I it bet you actually, were fun, though. I bet you were a fun teacher. Well, I was just very, very... Did you um, rinse all your students? Yeah, I did do. I did, yeah. I did, yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, the other thing is, is that um, one of the things I discovered about teaching is that if kids know that you like them and you want the best for them, yeah. they will accept anything from you in terms of punishments, in terms of bollockings or whatever, if they believe you've got their best interests at heart. I really do believe that the ki- kids start to give teachers shit when they don't think you like them or they think yeah. you're, you, you're just doing a job or whatever. I, 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 love, I love working with young people and I loved teaching. And I feel like the kids knew that. And so if you gave them a detention or you gave them a bollocking or you said to them, mate, you cannot do that, they would accept it because... And they, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that my classes were perfectly behaved. Yeah. But like I never... You know, I really felt like that was the key to getting to getting the kids to be on side, you know, was 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 their belief that you had their best interests at heart. I think if you have that, if you can convey that, everything else is easy after that. And I what type easy. of school did you teach in? Was it a comprehensive or a, or a Well, weirdly, I taught, I ended up teaching at the comprehensive that I moved no to. No way. Yeah, 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 yeah. God, yeah. that must have been weird coming full circle like that. Yeah, it was weird. Well, the, the the thing is, actually, my experience of moving from a private school to a comprehensive gave me a lifelong belief in delivering really high quality comprehensive education because I, I was at a school that dealt with the very top end socially. You know, these children were privileged, coming from privileged backgrounds. And then I went to a comprehensive school and I saw how committed those teachers were. Mm. And I saw how challenging some of those experiences those teachers had because you're dealing with kids that don't have a great home life. And, and so they give, they give the teachers shit at school. And I saw the way the teachers dealt with that. And, um, and it gave me, and it made me very passionate about comprehensive education. And Mm. so, um, I decided that when I became a teacher, I only wanted to work in comprehensive schools. And 
my wife um, has the same kind of belief and we decided that we were going to only send our kids to comprehensive schools just because we've got that kind of yeah that kind of belief in it in that system so yeah it was it was weird going back to that school man but um it was great it was really mm. great you know and um I ended up actually because that's that school was like quite for a comprehensive school it's actually quite a top achieving school mm. and so I ended up leaving that school to go and work I had like a Michelle Pfeiffer dangerous minds moment where I like moved to this like school that just come out of special measures yeah. and I thought I could like save them by turning my chair backwards and kind Coolio of Coolio Gangster's Paradise <laughs> is playing in the background <laughs> Uh, it did not work out like that. Okay, no, right. I don't mind telling you, but um, right. um, but yeah. Anyway, so I was I was teaching, and then I start, so I started doing stand up, and I was just doing it, kind of messing around, just shitty open mic gigs. I didn't even know what the open mic scene was, but there's this open mic circuit where they're these gigs that people throw for free. You beg a spot on these gigs, and you start off doing like five minutes, and you'd be in the corner of a pub. Somebody sets a microphone up there. Most of the people don't know comedies on that night. I mean, it's horrendous. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It's weird. Ironically, you know, I mean, you know, as you know from DJing, like the, the, the most difficult gigs you do at the beginning of your career, weirdly, don't you? Because people just don't give a shit about you. Yeah. So I was watching. Um, um, have you ever watched those Anthony Bourdain documentaries where he he travels the world? And I was watching one of them with my husband last night about Montreal. And right. there was like a scene with like loads of snow. And I was like, yeah, the one time I went to Montreal, actually, it looked like that. And he was like, you went to Montreal? I was like, yeah. He was like, how? I was like, I did a gig, 20 people. And he was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> you went all that way. That, that's what it was. You go all the way right. to Montreal to play to an empty room with 20 people. It's, oh. mate, mate, I remember, I remember doing a gig in Brighton and this guy came up to me. He goes, mate. That that I really enjoyed your set. He goes, I'd love to. I'd love to book you uh, for this gig I run in Southampton, and I was still teaching. And but the the idea that somebody from Southampton would want me to do a gig, like it, honestly, mate, it was like finding out I was doing live at the Apollo. Like I fucking, I, I, I lost my mind. And I was like, holy shit! And I said to him, mate, fucking hell, mate, mate, I'm doing like they want me to do this gig in Southampton. And so like my mate said, I'll drive you. I'll drive you. He was a teacher as well. And so we drove like two and a half hours to Southampton and I turned up at the gig and it's like, it's, it's just an open mic gig. I'm not even getting paid for this. Right? Yeah, it's yeah. Like, it was like, just, I just can't believe I'm doing fucking Southampton, man. <laughs> Jesus. So I turned up to this gig after school. So we, I finished school. We jump in my mate's car. We head to Southampton and I turn up at the gig and the girl on the door, she goes to me, um, oh, you're Romish, aren't you? I said, yeah. She goes, oh, mate, Alex was telling me about your set. Like, I'm really excited to see you. And I was like, fucking hell, they've heard about me in Southampton. <laughs> this is mental, right? And so I go to do the gig. Honestly, Annie, I ate shit. I mean, oh, I, no. I, I should have asked for a knife and fork for the <laughs> amount of shit I ate. Properly. How many people? Like, was it a full house? No. It was, well, it was a full house for that room. So like, what, 30 people? Okay. So I properly, properly ate shit, asked for seconds. (laughs) And then when I, when I came off stage. Did you get any laughs? No, no. And I barely got applause. As I said, I've been Romesh Ragalafi. You could hear hear the mic click into the stand. (laughs) How does that feel? Like as, as someone who's, who's kind of had lots of dud gigs and kind of have I have this kind of really loud internal dialogue when I'm DJing but I'm not talking I'm just playing record so when you're when you're actually talking and you know that you are a sinking ship do you get that same feeling of kind of panic rising like kind of it's this it's it's disgusting it's absolutely (laughs) disgusting I I can't I, I can't honestly mate 
It is. It's just it makes me feel sick right now <laughs> thinking about it. Do you know that? Do you know the funny thing is? It's like at that time, you know, I had seven minutes of material. That's everything. I've yeah. got seven minutes of stuff, right? So I do my seven minutes. If that doesn't work, <laughs> I've got fuck all else for you. Do you know what I mean? Like, like that is what I do, you know? But so, so, so now, when you're trying out new material, actually dying is part of the experience because I've got to write new stuff yeah. and I've got to go and I've got to go, look, guys, some of this is, might be shit. And, and, and the thing is, you're dying, but you have to because it's part of, it's like going to the gym or whatever. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? You've got, you've got to work this stuff up so you can get better. But it still feels the same. Yeah. It doesn't feel any better. Yeah. It still feels like the first time you ever died on your ass. It, it's it doesn't. You don't get used to it. it. Doesn't get easier. It's just rank. Because like with a comedian, it's not just like it's not just what you look like. It's not just your what you're putting out there. It's the it's it's your literally it's your personality. <laughs> it's your whole character or whatever character you decide to be on that stage it's yeah. it's so personal right like that must it must yeah. feel brutal yeah it's it, it's it's because when you're a dj it's what? just your records and you yeah, have like yeah. and i'm sure you have like a panic a panic fucking cupboard in your head of jokes that you are fail safe like i have a yeah. panic folder of records that are fail safes but like it, it you give so much more of yourself as a comedian i think or maybe I'm yeah, because, no, no, you're totally yeah. right. And, I, and I, like you said, it depends on the type of comic you are. But I'm very much, you know, how I'm talking to you now is what I you do are on you. stage. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so basically, you know, it's such a narcissistic endeavour stand up because it's this thing where you want the audience every 30 seconds to tell you they love you by laughing. Right. And so when when they stop laughing, what they're saying is we don't like you. <laughs> it's not it's not. It's not how you're dressed. It's not what you're doing. It's you. We do not want. We do. We are not enjoying you as a person. That's oh, it's that's what it feels like. But they don't. Look, but the truth is, they don't think that. Do you know what I mean? Like you sort of walk off and they they forget about you. But it's it's fucking brutal, man. It's brutal, and it can happen. You know, it happens. It's, it can happen now. I'm not telling. I'm not. A death is not beyond me now. Do you know what I mean? It's not like I'm telling you now. I'm absolutely fail safe. I mean, I, I eat shit. But know, that's probably healthy, though, right? To kind of keep remembering that you're not invincible on stage. I, I think that the, the, I think that what's quite good is it feels like there is this this kind of comedy god that whenever you feel like you might have mastered it. He'll go. How about how about you eat this tonight? And then and then he goes. Oh, right. If if in the middle of it you go, Jesus, I'm having a really good one. It, go, it stops that, that yeah. whatever that is yeah. stops. It yeah. stops. So because some people will tell you they don't like stand up comedy because it's they don't like that thing of of somebody trying to make you laugh. That this immediately... used to be me. Right, right, right. I yeah. Was always so like, I don't want to be, have enforced laughter. It's the same as <laughs> yeah, Valentine's yeah. Day. Don't tell me to love my fucking boyfriend. Don't tell me to. La- I'll laugh if I like. I was one of those really obstinate, oh, no. annoying people. Same with magicians. Fuck off. That's not magic. That's a trick. <laughs> I know. All of that. Yeah. I do understand that sentiment. Actually, well, you're a naturally cynical comic. person, so you would have to. You yeah. have to understand yeah. that, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But then, like, sometimes you watch somebody. You'll see a group of friends at a pub. 
and one of them says something and they'll all start pissing themselves and they just fucking lose it. And as a stand-up comic, I watch that and I go, that's what I want. And it's very rare that you can achieve that level of kind of laugh as a stand-up comic because you're not in their circle of friends. You know, you're trying to make people laugh. And occasionally you hit that sweet spot where you just feel like we're all round a table in a pub losing our minds. Do you know what I mean? And that is... That is it's great. It's a great feeling when that happens. So was there a point where you nearly didn't become a comedian? Because obviously the first few were, as they should be, you ate shit, as you so eloquently said. <laughs> was there a point when you were like, I can't do this, fuck it, I'm going to just be a maths teacher? Yeah, yeah, there was. So the f- we're, we're just like, you know, I decided to go full time. My agent had said to me, you need to go full time. Right. If you really want to make a proper go at this. You had an agent. That's that's good for us. Yes, on, yes. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so she said to me, you're going to have to go full time. I, w- I decided to go full time. And then three days before I quit, my dad passed away. So I'd have a heart attack. Right. Like out of nowhere. So. So then what happened is, is that we, we became so obsessed with not obsessed. We became so concerned about looking after my mum and making sure she was set up and trying to figure all that out. That I took my, you know, I wasn't able to focus on comedy as much as I would have liked. And so I wasn't making any money from it. And so once we got my mum sorted out and figured out what we were doing with that, there was still the hangover of that. And so for the first couple of years in stand up, I just wasn't getting anywhere. You know, I wasn't making any money and we were broke. You know, we weren't covering the bills. And it felt particularly kind of out of order to, to Lisa because essentially it's like a vanity project. You know, and Lisa's trying- your wife. Yeah, Lisa, my wife. It felt really out of order because I'd been getting a steady salary as a teacher. And now I've said to her, because I think that I deserve to be paid for talking, I am going to roll the dice on our livelihood. You know, it felt like a very selfish thing to do. And so there's kind of the associated guilt that comes with all of that. Yeah. And so we were struggling, you know, and I remember um, I remember saying to Lisa, I was on my way to a, a gig and I remember saying to her, I don't, I don't know if, what the point of this is anymore. Yeah. You know, I, 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 don't, I don't know what I'm doing here. I think I'm going to have to start thinking about going back to teaching because this just isn't working out. And she said to me, well, let's have a chat about it when you come home. And the truth is, is that I think Lisa, is in, she's incredibly supportive, but also was going through, we're going through a tough time. And yeah. so... I think she was dealing with the fact that she wanted to be supportive, but also didn't want this to carry on as it was, yeah. you know, like yeah, yeah. it was like, I had this thing where we, I couldn't afford the road tax on our car and I had some money that was due to come in from a gig. And I said to Lisa, let's just manage without for a bit. And then when this money comes in from this gig, I'll get us a new road tax. And then we came home from the shops and the car was gone and I phoned the police and they said, oh, your car's been impounded because you haven't got any road tax. Oh, my and God. I said to them, how much is it going to cost to get it back? And they said, well, you've got a fine. And then they said, and every day that you, we have the car, it's another £150 to, for the cost for keeping it. So I said, OK, thanks for letting me know. And then I just said to Lisa, we don't have a car anymore because there's no way I could have afforded yeah. to get it back, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. so it's all those kind of things. I'm put, you know, we're, putting the, we're, we're going through all of that. And it's all feels self-inflicted because it's happening because I've decided I want to do comedy. So I think that the truth is, if it had gone on much longer, I would have had to. I would have gone back to teaching. I mean, I went through a period of of just thinking this is last chance now. Do you know what I mean? I, I don't think this is going to work out. 
And then was there an, a, a t- an opposite time where you were like, okay, I'm out of the red. I think I, I think I can do this. Like, what, do you remember a gig that you'll be like, okay, I've done it? Yeah, I do actually. I, I remember going to it was a Leicester Mercury Comedian of the Year, and it's 2013. You can't enter this competition yourself. Promoters submit acts that they've right. seen during the right. year for this competition, and for that reason, it's got a bit more prestige to it, you know. Yeah. So. I said to Lisa, I don't like competitions and this is, I don't really want to do this. Which, oh, by the way, to, just to let you know, I do say that a lot to Lisa. I don't know why I'm doing this. I don't, I don't want to do this. Um, just so you know. And anyway, the stars aligned. I had a great set and I won that competition. Wow. And it felt like it came at exactly the right time. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, it, it, I was feeling really like, fuck, what am I doing with this? Yeah. You know, winning that competition was a life changer for me. Not because of what it led to, because it, it didn't particularly lend, give me more opportunities. It, 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 it paid a grand for the prize money, which was obviously useful yeah. and felt like a lot of money at the time. But it was more what it did psychologically for me. Yeah. You know, yeah. I kind yeah. of thought, okay, this external panel of industry judges, you know, have given me this win. It was like, it was exactly what I needed at the time. really. <laughs> When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Your last change, was, which is what would you want to change for yourself right now the most? I'm fascinated by this answer. Tell me the answer. Yeah, well, I, the, the, my change is that I, I want to be completely unaffected by failure. Is 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 the thing that um is the thing that I'd like to change the most about myself, and 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 that there's that that's kind of quite multifaceted, I guess. Yeah. But you know, one of the things you know, in its sort of most simplistic form, um, I love like making stuff do you know like I really really love making stuff and so you know making shows making stand-up or whatever so we did a series for BBC2 called The Ranganation and writing that show trying the material out putting that together recording the show buzzing off my tits love it absolutely love it right so great what I don't love is that show being broadcast right Right. like like I, I, I just because you're worried that people will think it's shit Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And right. so, like, you sort of go. It's difficult because I think it would be worse if I thought it was shit, and then people thought it was shit. Because you sort of go, yeah. Yeah. I know. You. you, 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 you yeah. You've, <laughs> yeah. I know. You know. But it's a thing where, like, you're proud of this thing, 
And then you're sort of nervous that it's going to go tits up or they won't like it or whatever, right? And what I want is to not be affected by the outcome of that. Yeah. It's to go, this is a thing I've created. It's as good as I could do in the circumstances. If you don't like it, fuck you. Yeah. I, you know, I can't do anything about that. Do you know what I mean? And the reason I want that is not because I don't want to worry about outcomes. I do, 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 you know, I do think you need to have some sort of kind of accountability. You do want to deliver. But the truth is, is that I think creativity is so much better when you're completely freed of, of what the outcome might be yes. or what the results might be. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like when I'm writing a stand-up tour, I've managed it with stand-up. You know, I do get nervous that people are going to find it funny. But I don't ever think, what do people want to hear from me? I yeah. just think, what the fu- what do I want to talk about? Do you yeah. know what, I mean? what do I want to talk about? What do I find funny? What, and and I'm, that's my driver. And I think you take more risks if you're not worried about failure. You become better. Yeah. When you, you know, and, and, you know, who knows? I might, right? I might have a character. I might be a character comedian. You know, I might, there might be a character that I've got that I just have been too impinged by what I think the expectations are of what I should do to do it, to try it. And there are certain performers, there's certain people that just think, fuck it, I'm going to do whatever. Like, for example, Kanye West. I know that's a weird example to bring in in this stage. But like, and and listen, he's a controversial guy. (laughs) But but let's put aside the Trumpisms and all that for one one second. That guy doesn't give a shit what his next album sounds like. He he brought out a a gospel hip hop record. Do you Mm. know what I mean? And like, and listen, I didn't like that album. I didn't think it was very good. But I do respect him for having the, just for just putting it out. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah. I, and I think that that kind of, I think that being completely, I want to be able to, to create something and go, this is the thing I want to make now. And it's not my problem whether you like it or not. You know, that's where I want to be. Isn't it like, especially in 2020, so hard to have complete freedom of expression as a comedian because your darkest corners of a character are going to be saying things that aren't fucking okay to say like anymore yeah. um I, I mean that's presumptuous on my part about you yeah, but yeah. like but like I mean, everyone has feelings that they might feel like they want to express but they're worried there's so many rules now to what you can and can't say and and, and social media and the extreme polarity of that it's it, has that affected you and what you put out there the truth is I don't know. What I would say to you is I have not stopped saying anything that I want to say for Great. fear of censorship or perception of censorship or whatever. That That is not changed what I've said. What I would say to you is I've had more complaints and that has become more apparent, you know, and people feel more emboldened to be offended by things you know I, I, in, sure. the, in the tour that I'm doing at the moment that we're on a break from because of because of the the lockdown or the pandemic or whatever I talk about the environment and 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 about um how I don't think people really care as much as they say they care so I was saying that and it was and it was a lot less refined than the routine is now because I was working it out and I was doing it in North London so you know quite a yeah you can't imagine you know they're not the most easily offended uh, of demographics yeah. you know that and and a girl got up, stood up in the middle of the thing, in the middle of the set and said, I cannot listen to you talk like this anymore. And I said, what? And she goes, you know, the environment is a serious issue. The idea that you would make jokes about it and undermine it. I just, I can't, I, I'm sorry, I'm not having it. I, I can't listen to it. And she just like made a show of walking out of... What of, did of you the, do? Well, I made a joke of it because she'd injected a lot of tension into the yeah. air. 
Yeah. And I kind of made a choice. I, I said to her, you know, because I, I said to her, well, what is your line in the sand here? Because earlier I joked about wanting my son to be taken away by a paedophile. And I said, and, and you didn't say anything. And I said, and now that I'm talking about the environment, that's suddenly your, that's your, that's your hot, your red button. That's your, I, I don't listen yeah. to any more of this. I said, you know, I was joking then as I am joking now, you know, like you got, yeah. a, you know, yeah. so, but, but that didn't stop me from talking about it. The truth is, I don't think it has affected me. Good. But it might have done. Yeah. yeah who knows? Yes. Who Unconsciously, knows? it might have. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It might have done. So what yeah. is the key? Like, how do you reach that fucking sweet spot where you don't give a shit what people think about what you're putting out there? Do you yeah, know I anyone? Do. I mean, I... do you know people who are like that? Yeah, I do. I do. Look, I think it comes from not needing anything. You know, and I don't yeah. mean materially. I mean not needing anything from that project. I'm just going to try and do the thing I want to do. Yeah. And if that gets somewhere, great. And if it doesn't, then whatever. Yeah, so like doing it for art's sake. Yes, exactly, exactly. And that's, and and I I think that, I mean, the truth is getting to that point is is, is a privilege in a way because, not in a way, I mean, it's it's pure privilege. Mm. It requires a certain amount of financial independence to be able to go, I don't give a fuck if this thing that I spend a load of time on makes money or not or gets success or not. You know, you've got. I think you've got to make a choice, and I think that what I'm, what I want to do is the stuff that I work on. I have to be willing to not compromise that for the sake of it being on telly. If if somebody says to me, "We'll make this if you're willing to make this change," I have to make the decision as to whether mm. I agree with that change creatively, and if I do, I make that change, and if I don't make that change, and that means it doesn't get made by these people, I yeah. have to be willing to do that. You know, Richard, like, I think of like Richard Pryor. Yeah. Richard Pryor was having an amazing commercial career. Yeah. And then he was doing that Vegas residency. I don't know how much you know about this story, but like, and he just went, fuck this, I'm out. And he just walked away from it. And then when he re-emerged, he was this politicised, you know, talking about race, talking about the N-word. He came back and he wasn't going... This is the new thing. I found the new thing that's going to make me big. He was like, this is what I'm talking about. Yeah. And I don't give a fuck if this gets me big or not. And it, yeah. it, the fact is it happened to get him big because it was amazing yeah. and groundbreaking and incredible. Same thing with Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle walked away from that TV show. He was getting paid millions and millions of dollars and he just fucked it off yeah. because he felt like he was compromising himself too much. Yeah. And then came back and he was like, this is what I'm talking, you know, this is what I do. Now that, and I'm not saying I need to walk away and come, I need to go into the wilderness for a bit. But I do think that I do want to be driven by creative, you know, just yeah. pure creativity rather yeah. than anything else. That's like kind of what I want. For example, I'll go and do a gig where I'm trying out new material and I'll go with some stuff I've written that day. And the the person on before me might absolutely kill it. They're destroying it, right? They're like the crowd are going nuts or whatever. And then I've got a choice then when I go on stage, right? They're about to introduce me on after this guy. I've got a choice. Do I go on with this stuff I've just written, knowing that it could get nothing and these people will leave the room thinking he was the worst act on that night, yeah. right? You know, or do I default to some stuff that I know that's going to work because it'll, I'll have a better gig. Listen, it's every DJ's dilemma. <laughs> Do I go on after the guy that's played every fucking hit and just carry on with the hits or do I clear the floor and start again 
and have to fucking build it up from scratch. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and, uh, man. and that's a real, it's an integrity thing. It's a fearlessness. Yeah, and, and I've gone both ways in the yeah, past. Yeah, me too. You know, sometimes I've gone, fuck this, man. I've got to show what I can do here. Yeah. And then you leave and you go, well, that was great for your ego. What have you learned tonight? <laughs> you know, what you, 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 you've, you've gone out, you've left your wife and kids at home and you've gone and done this gig, what? To just sort of wank, to sort of go... <laughs> Aren't I great at stand-up? Like, like, what were you... Why did you do this? That's, you know, that's a very, you know, microcosm of that fear of failure. Yeah. You've got to go, I do not care if I am the worst act on tonight. Yeah. If it means I learn something about, about stand-up or yeah. about what my stand-up 100%. is. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Let so, me ask yeah. you, like, one last question before we let you go, Ramesh. When it comes to music, right, I always feel like the people that that end up being the icons and the classic people like the people who who provide us with a classic canon of music singers musicians are people who have experienced pain who have a kind of inner sadness to them like in the way that they sing or in the way that they play do you feel like there's a parallel with comedians there it's it's a really good question man it's it's something that I've thought about a lot. I, I, I did a, a documentary about about Richard Pryor a, a, a while ago. He's like my favourite comic, and and he had such a horrendous yeah. background. And I was exploring the idea that I could never be as good as Richard Pryor, uh, talent aside, because he was gifted with this sort of horrendous kind of pain in his childhood that just forged this genius. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And and I, I do think, I mean, look, I mean, I said to you earlier on in this thing that I don't think I would have been a comedian if, if I hadn't have gone through what I've gone through. I, I do think there is, there is something in it. I do, I do think you look, at, you look at the very best comedians, the people that really, really have changed it or, or are amazing at what they do, and they're just wired slightly incorrectly. And, and, and that is a result of, of what's happened to them. I do, I do think there is something in that. You know, the best comedy routines is when somebody takes something that you know and looks at it in a completely different way, in a way that you hadn't thought about it before. Yeah. And in order to be able to do that, you have to have a brain that's wired like that, or you have to be knocked off kilter a little bit. And that is what pain does. It kind of spins you out a little bit. It kind of puts you in a different mindset. And so I do think there is something in that. It's an interesting one. I, I, I definitely think there's a correlation. But then equally, you sort of I do know comedians that are... That haven't gone through that, who I think. So are you really can good be a, well. like a really happy, happy guy, apparently, happy gal. Apparently, yeah, yeah I've heard stories. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Ramesh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. No worries. Thank you so much for having me. Anna. Thank you so much to Ramesh for that very revealing and predictably fun conversation what a guy uh, you will see him pretty much any time you turn on the telly these days I turned on the telly last Friday night and I think I flicked through two channels and he was on both at the same time he's on all the comedy panel shows he is so in demand so delighted he was able to give some time to us for changes this week 
Right, do check out Wilmesh's work. As I said, he has a book dropping in October, As Good As It Gets, Life Lessons From a Reluctant Adult. You can go back and check out his Hip Hop Save My Life podcast if you're a fan of rap music. Uh, He's also going to be touring the Cynics mixtape next year. All the links are in the show notes if you want to check out any of them. Now, thank you for your comments on Zadie Smith, who opened this series. Selena Revai said, I bloody loved your first podcast this season. Zadie Smith is a magnificent woman. Yay! Thank you to Shola as well, who described it as bloody gorgeous. I like the consistency of bloody in your uh, comments there. I love that word. So yes, thank you for listening to Zadie. Please check it out if you haven't. And don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. It really, really helps. And we love to hear from you. Next week on the podcast, have you ever wondered what it's like to win the lottery? Well, now you can find out. I'm going to be speaking to someone who did just that and finding out how it has changed her life. What really happens when you win the lottery? What really goes on in your head? How do you really change your life? And does it fundamentally make you a happier person? This episode was produced by Louise Mason through Rethink Audio. Thank you for listening. See you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.